I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy from Keshet Podcasts, two Jews on the news. Or should I say this week, Jonathan, maybe unhealthy instead of unholy? Oh, go on, why? Tell me. <laughs> well, one of us has COVID and it's not Jonathan. Surprise, no, surprise. It isn't, it isn't me. Um, you've got the positive test, haven't you? It's happened. Yes, it's happened. It's that um, the the beginning of the week, my son uh, got a, a positive result. And that's when you kind of see in your mind, like on the, remember the Pac-Man games we used to play? And it's like game over. Mm. You kind of realize that it's uh, that it's done. I mean, look, first of all, I have to say I'm I'm fine, right? I mean, I feel just very mild symptoms of, of cold, but emotionally kind of feels like, really? Getting COVID now? I mean, two years into the pandemic, it's like you're the last one to arrive to a lame party and all the cool kids have left, you know? Like, it's like <laughs> everybody who's anybody had COVID. I mean, it's so 2020. No offense, Jonathan. It really is. And it's I, so 2020. I think I feel slightly guilty here because I'm a Jewish person, so we find guilt. And, and that is because did we tempt fate, you and me, by sort of bragging on the podcast that somehow both of us had eluded a positive that, test and now there you are. A world of yes. We jinxed it and it is your fault. I don't <laughs> mind saying it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I sh- again, like in all seriousness, I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted, I'm fine, right? I did everything I could to protect my community and my family and my parents. But you think of so many people in the hospital and you see the data and you realize it is the people who are unvaccinated or partially, uh, only partially uh, vaccinated who are not faring uh, as well. So, I mean, if it wasn't clear thus far, I wasn't saying it clearly. I think vaccinations are, are very important. And this is how you go through this uh, um, disease when, when you are indeed uh, vaccinated. Hopefully. Right. Because for you, it's what? Feeling pretty mild? Yes. I mean, again, I uh, you know, I'm I'm okay enough to do the podcast yeah, today, no, so that means noticed. that uh, we're very that pleased. We're I mean, just to draw out from your personal case, a larger yes, policy point. I will report I'm, from the trenches. Because I'm bound yes. to want to do that. Here's this thing. I see these numbers coming out of Israel, which, you know, these graphs, a couple of weeks ago now, this sky-high spike of yep. so many cases. And the cases here are some huge number as well. And then you read reports, it's definitely happened here in England, where the restrictions have been more or less dropped. And then a case of Denmark, where they've got the highest infections they've ever had, just as they're taking away all the restrictions. Mm -hmm. Is that because, and you're now living it, so you can tell me, is it because you and everyone else who's getting getting positive tests, positive results uh, in Israel, is feeling it pretty mildly, because Omicron is a bit weaker and milder, and therefore, yeah, everyone can have it, but you can carry on living. Well, sure. First of all, as you said, I mean, the infection rate in Israel being what it is, we're in the top five of countries around uh, the world and basically lifting, I think, less so than the UK and Denmark. We still have some restrictions, especially regarding um, rapid testing for children in the education system. But yes, saying two things. A, this infection rate is so high in this uh, specific variant, the Omicron variant. On the other hand, as we realize, if you're vaccinated, then it's it's quite mild. It's either closing down the whole country like we did in the first lockdowns or saying, basically, there's not much to be done. We're just going to let this run its course. 
the estimations are that most Israelis will be uh, infected by this is, by the time this is over, and then hopefully have some sort of thing that was called at the beginning beginning herd immunity. But let's just remind everybody: we talked about that when people weren't vaccinated, and were probably the variants were much more severe, caused a severe illness more than this one. Probably. I know. It makes me wonder if everyone's going to think, you know what, the human race were quite sensible in a way on this. When they had no vaccine, it was all lockdowns. Once they had the vaccine, they thought, okay, let the let the virus rip. And in a way, broadly, the Israel case, Britain as well, maybe, suggests that was probably the way it would have to, you know, it was bound to work. And it kind of did work. So... Well, we've made you an, a medical um, sort of example. Um, where is I've, my Where is my chicken soup? Where is my challah? What kind of Jewish friend are you? I yeah, mean, I know I, we live in two different countries, but why is this? It sounds like a flimsy experience. If we lived in the same country, I would have left a very wonderful saucepan of chicken soup on the doorstep um, for there, you. Definitely, you know, FedEx does ex- exist in this world. FedEx definitely. Saying. No, just I was saying. thinking, I was just getting ahead of myself because I was thinking, about the word chicken soup and whether there's that could possibly be the word I'm looking for in a game that I've been playing obsessively, which we will come to later. Are you on spoiling the, 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 the rest of our programs? No, I'm not. Doing? I'm not. Okay. But just chicken okay. suddenly made me think maybe. Um, people will <laughs> guess what I'm talking about. We'll come to that later. We should talk about things in the news. We are two Jews on the news. And Jews have been making news, Yoni, all yep. week. I mean, Jews and people talking about them it's you know like those books those self-help books called men and the women who love them you know (laughs) this is jews and the people who talk about jews um last week was holocaust memorial day okay the holocaust was in the news then it was memorial day you get it but as proof that this is just an enduring news story and it goes on and on um you know the papers were full this week of news from the publishers of that controversial book on Anne Frank that purported to have unmasked the betrayer of Anne Frank. That book, the publishers now apologise for it and announce they're suspending any further printing of it. So, you know, that because they they think the findings maybe were a bit suspect and they're going to have to, um, uh, you know, re-examine their evidence. But bigger news than that, and this has really been a dominant story in the United States, Whoopi Goldberg, obviously famous Hollywood actress, but uh, now a regular panelist on ABC TV's The View. And she was on there. I think they were talking about this row, which we covered on the podcast, about Mouse, which had been pulled uh, by the Tennessee school board. And she said, started saying, well, you know, it wasn't racism, whatever else the Holocaust was. It can't possibly be racism because everyone involved was white and therefore it's not racism. Rather, this just illustrated, you know, man's inhumanity to man something very general there was obviously a big row about it and then she was on the stephen colbert show and essentially doubled down on what she'd said we can hear a bit of it here the nazis lied they had issues with ethnicity not with race because most of the nazis were white people and most of the people they were attacking were white people so to me i'm thinking how can you how can you say it's about race if you are fighting each other? Yes. How can you say it was about race when you're fighting each other? This was her actually trying to apologize and clarify her earlier statements. After saying this, she was then suspended uh, from uh, uh, The View for two weeks by ABC. Now, you know, the one thing 
that is amazing. Before we even get to talk about this, uh, Jonathan, is <laughs> I sent Lior our EP the same day. I was like, what do you think we should say about this? And he just responded, there's nothing to say. She said something stupid. Let's move on. But that's obviously not the world that we live in. And on the one hand, right, we live in a world where there's a new news item, not every 24 hours, but every 24 seconds. And on the other hand, this is kind of a paradox, but because of the social media and the way that it is constructed, this will live on and on for another at least couple of days just because of the reaction to the reaction, um, et cetera. Look, um, I think we can agree that this wasn't malice, right? That this was jaw-droppingly ignorant, but it wasn't uh, anti-Semitism unless you disagree. And the one thing you kind of feel like doing here is just saying, listen, Whoopi, take a really talented documentary filmmaker, two cameras, Go to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. You don't even have to splurge and go to Poland and to Auschwitz. Just learn about this and do it even in front of the camera. That would be so important for everyone, for your viewers, for you. It would actually make for pretty good television as well. Instead of, I think, uh, suspending someone who actually did make an attempt at apologizing. Yeah, I, that's a really great idea, by the way. Somebody should do that. Uh, memo to Keshet, Commission Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> uh, I think it's a really good idea. I think, um, and you're, you're being, and quite a few people were forgiving of her in the same way, which was saying, look, you know, Jews can be, and their history is complicated, and people can be forgiven for not knowing everything about it. I didn't like the suspension because I thought it played into that narrative of, uh, you know, Jews and the media and all that. And I also thought people will say, even though actually it wouldn't be true, ah, this is, you can't say anything about Jews, but you can say what you like about other people. Actually not true. I think if you'd said the equivalent thing about slavery, I think you'd also be suspended from the view um, mm -hmm. for saying that. Um, I, I thought it was, you know, spectacularly ignorant. I think given how much there is about the Holocaust, you know, it's present Schindler's List, Anne Frank, Mouse. I don't think there are that many excuses for not knowing about it, but okay, she didn't know about it. I think what it reveals, though, as well, besides just a, a sort of individual case of ignorance, is something that happens in, in the American conversation particularly, which is the limitations that come from seeing the world through the lens of America, and particularly American race and racism, where, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a black and white story. It's a story of slavery and white, you know, white enslavement of black people. And that means if you really crudely see the world only through that lens, anything which isn't literally black and white doesn't count as racism, even though, my God, it's almost the paradigm case of racial prejudice and racial hate is the Nazis' racially motivated hatred of the Jews. Look at they what they themselves said, race. right? Right, exactly. This is exactly what they themselves have said. That is the important point here. Um, but yes, as you say, I mean, and we talked about this, I think, uh, extensively on the program, the fact that there are parts, not only in the United States, by the way, that look at, and this is maybe a little bit different, but they look at Jews, as uh, David Bedil, one of our guests, called, right, as hyper-white, right? They're... Uh, as these people think, right? They're privileged, they're powerful, they're rich. All this in itself is an anti-Semitic view of, of Jews. But because of this, they think, wait a minute, why, why would you call them a minority? Why would you call them a persecuted minority? They're, as she was trying to say, what do you mean? It's white against white, right? Without understanding at all the historical context of, of what happened. Yeah, I, I mean, I hated even, be, be, almost beyond the ignorance, this 
fighting each other line, as if yeah. there was some kind of parity. This right. was a genocidal onslaught against a single powerless minority by the mightiest military power the world, certainly Europe, had ever seen at that stage. If, and, if they were fighting each other, we'd have a lot more Jews around. Right. Today. I mean, this, and, and, the, and it really is a very kind of almost neo-Nazi view, which is, you know, the Jews had somehow declared war on Germany first. And there are yeah. Holocaust deniers who try and argue that. So it was a really insidious thing to say that when she... Uh, did double down saying they were fighting each other an internal dispute no that's not how it is i think this thing about um whiteness is is really interesting as you say badil said to us and to others you know hyper white in the eyes of the left but not white at all in the eyes of the fascist racist right um they regard jews as you know sub aryan subhuman and not white and that was what the whole nazi onslaught on the jews was about so I hope maybe something does come out of it. And the best thing that really could come out of it, I think, is right. is the idea you had, which is that she now makes public her own journey of education. Right. And maybe that would reach an audience that otherwise would not tune in to a documentary about the Holocaust Museum or whatever. So I think that's a you know properly a good idea. You know, I was there's another thing that I was thinking of, and maybe it's sort of in the margins of the of this discussion, but this happened exactly at the same time when uh, the whole Spotify Joe Rogan story blew up, right? And, and you're looking at this and you're saying, why is Joe Rogan uh, kept on Spotify and uh, Whoopi Goldberg suspended from ABC? I don't know if she'll be fired or not, but right now she's suspended from ABC. And they kind of got me uh, wondering, we, we should maybe uh, remind our listeners if they, they kind of forgot the story about the Joe Rogan who's uh, on Spotify averaging 11 million listeners an episode and has an exclusive deal with them reportedly worth about $100 million. So uh, because of uh, mounting criticism that he uh, himself and his guests are anti-vaxxers um, and, and spreading generally spreading COVID misinformation, uh, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell at, requested for him to be pulled. Spotify said they won't do it. And so they asked for their music to be uh, off Spotify. This has a whole discussion uh, um, arising. But, you know, this, is, this, uh, this kind of begs a question. Because for sure, what he has been saying, right, and what his guests have been saying is something that is rather da dangerous to public health, right? When you say this is not vaccines, this is gene therapy, right? And the people who are young are uh, big, get bigger health risks from uh, the, the vaccine than from COVID. This is dangerous stuff. What she said, however offensive and, and ignorant, and not, I don't think it's necessarily dangerous. So again, it begs the question, why is she suspended and he isn't? Um, and I would think the, the, the first thing, obviously, is he has 11 million listeners and she has 2.4 viewers. So her audience is small and network in general has a shrinking uh, viewer uh, audience. So maybe that has something to do with it, right? We don't want to upset the audience we have. But I, you know, maybe because I come from network television, one of the reasons I was thinking of is, is at least when you have network television, and look, we, we know what ratings is, we know it's important, I'm not being naive, but you still have certain ethical standards, certain moral standards. And when you are Spotify, and you're definitely a digital platform that can essentially say, yeah, we have some restrictions, but you know, we're like the lockers in Penn Station. We don't have any responsibility for what, or almost no responsibility for what you put in those lockers. That is a difference. And when the world is moving more and more to this Am I ranting? This is, I'm sorry. No, I'm I mean, the world I, is more, more moving to this. That is what you're, I think, going to see. 
Yeah, no, I think you make a very good point. It's that thing where ABC has editorial standards and makes editorial judgments and admits it's a publisher and therefore thinks, yeah, we should um, have uh, take some action uh, when some of our content uh, goes wrong. That the Spotify is a social media platform or a right. media platform that says we're a platform, we're not a publisher, everything goes, we have no responsibility. No, they said for the they content. have the power to suspend uh, any podcast that promotes dangerous falsehoods. So they yeah. probably they don't think that this rises Meets to the level of, of dangerous falsehoods. But here's a rare disagreement between you and me because I think actually what she said is in its own way a little dangerous. I think okay. misinformation like that, which says, the Holocaust, the biggest thing you've heard, perhaps, about Jews is sort of not true. They were just fighting each other. Well, you know, I've still got in my head the video of a two visible uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews walking down the street in my neighbourhood of North London last week and just being randomly attacked in the street. You know, hatred and anti-Semitism is dangerous. And if you tell people that the biggest thing you've heard about Jews is sort of a maybe a lie which is what yeah. I think, in effect, Whoopi Goldberg was at least leading to, then I think that's pretty dangerous. I mean, I, I do see the distinction you're drawing, but I, I, I wouldn't be so quick um, to put her in the slightly less serious category. Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> no, I, I do agree with you. I, I do agree with you, okay? I, I take it back. It is still dangerous. It still begs the question, why is he still on? Yeah. And she's not. Well, I think it's because Spotify take less responsibility and ours yep. being less responsible than mm -hmm. ABC. And that's why, you know, speaking as a legacy media person, um, I think there's still a big role for legacy media. Now, we have talked about what the world thinks of Jews, which is a bit like saying, enough about me, now let's talk about you, because mm -hmm. what about the world thinks about Israel? This is a little bit of Groundhog Day. By the way, it was Groundhog Day this week, but there was something a little bit Groundhog Day about this report that came from Amnesty International uh, deciding and making the judgment call that Israel is guilty of the international crime or the crime under international law of apartheid. Why do I say Groundhog Day? Because you and I had a conversation when Human Rights Watch made the same move. And of course, the Israeli groups Betselem and Yeshtin have also made that move. So it's no longer the first time Israel has been officially called apartheid. But it's a, it is a moment. That was episode 14 of season one. I'm sure you remember where we discussed. Even we with spirited. COVID, even with COVID, the recall <laughs> is total. We, we had a spirited debate about the Human Rights Watch uh, report that called Israel an apartheid state. Look, I'm going to start this by uh Quoting from Professor Mordechai Kremnitzer, he is obviously a legal analyst and a deputy pres president of the Israeli Democracy Institute and a Betselem board member. He wrote this in Haaretz about the report, the amnesty report. He wrote it's an extremely pretentious document. By screaming apartheid indiscriminately, the amnesty report fails to generate a real discussion about the fundamental problems of Palestinians living within and outside Israeli territory. Um, Rook, just to, I, I know there's been a lot of uh, responses to this, a lot of knee-jerk responses, just to argue this maybe on its merits. I think we can definitely agree that Israel inside the green line is not an apartheid state. I mean, there are Arab judges and lawyers and ministers and members of parliament, and I can go on. Is there a problem of discrimination inside Israel? Yes. Do other countries suffer from problems of issues of discriminations? Yes. Why is Israel then singled out as an apartheid state? Why would you conflate apartheid with uh, uh, this issue of uh, discrimination or even racism, deplorable as it is? 
I think that begs a question. And we talked about, obviously last time, and pretty extensively, about Israel's rule over the West Bank. That is becoming a more and more heated debate. By the way, I think also inside Israel, although uh, I think there would be some Israelis who would argue uh, this. And again, this is a different, I think we should say this over and over, two, two notes to Again, am I talking too much? I think this is a COVID side effect. I'm liking okay. it. And no, it's not too much. Keep going. Um, no, I think there's a di- there is definitely a difference, right, between apartheid and a sort of by default phenomenon that is not a structural design policy of subjugation, right? Israel's policies are problematic. And most importantly, they're temporary. I know that I say temporary and you would probably roll your eyes a little bit, but that is still important to say. And I think the most important point to say is, if you are indeed someone who cares about the future of Israel, who cares about the future of the Palestinian people, and who thinks that the solution is some sort of partition and some sort of Palestinian state, by the way, even the deal of the century, even Donald Trump, who had the most pro-Israeli plan put in place, right, talked about a partition and about a Palestinian state, you have to ask yourself, What is the value of this conversation? What is the value of saying apartheid over and over? And how does this at all progress the the, the, the situation? So on the what is the value (laughs) thing, I've got um, something to say about that. I will now drink my tea. Yeah, have, have the hot tea. Take a, take a moment. No, you wanted, you waited me to have COVID to have this amnesty discussion. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> I thought, I think there's a good case to be made on the, on the second ground, which is what does this actually achieve? And um, a writer I much admire on Israel, Anshel Fefavar, has made this point that, um, you know, there's now this pitch battle between the two sides where one side, both trading A words, you know, where Israel's critics call Israel apartheid. And then Israel's defenders call them anti-Semites. You're one horrible A-word. You're the other horrible A-word. And nothing moves. And indeed... And now I, let's do B. Now and, let's and do I, horrible I, words and B. Well, I slightly think the, re, the, the nothing moving and the rhetorical escalation are linked because I think it's almost a function of, a symptom of paralysis. It's because there's no progress that where people get movement is in just reaching for ever more... Uh, incendiary language. And I think, you know, in some ways, it's a symptom of the frustration built in to the situation. Uh, and Pfeffer's point is to go on and say, but meanwhile, the situation on the ground doesn't change. And diplomatically, no one cares. He says the world's moved on. It's just no longer an issue. And he says it in his very sort of hard-headed way. On the substance, I think it's... It, I, I see your point about the distinction. And that's interesting, again, because Amnesty did not acknowledge the distinction between pre-67 Israel and post-67 Israel. They put the apartheid label across the whole thing. Uh, And that's a change, by the way, from Human Rights Watch, who did observe the distinction. Human Rights Watch said, you know, some bad things going on inside pre-67 Israel. But in terms of this very legal definition, the international crime of apartheid, uh, they said only the occupation met that distinction. Amnesty go all in and say it's across the board. I think they have one sort of conceptual problem, legal-ish problem. And I noticed one of their, you know, um, admirers, uh, one of the people putting, boosting the report this week, Mehdi Hassan on MSNBC, uh, uh, an old friend and colleague of mine, he was saying, 
just when you say apartheid, you're not saying it's a replica of South Africa. You're saying it meets this very particular UN international legal standard. That's a problem because, of course, apartheid is literally an Afrikaans word. Of course, people identify it with South Africa. So rhetorically, it's it brings a whole lot of trouble if even someone who is on board, like Mehdi Hassan, has to go around explaining, no, we don't mean it's identical to South Africa. It's a more legal thing. So it's a difficult term. All of that said, I still do think you have to draw attention to the reality in the occupied territories, which is, yes, one group, amnesty say racial group, problematic for Whoopi Goldberg reasons, one group is dominating the other and has a whole battery of systems and laws and practices and military rule to ensure that outcome. And I think with all the caveats we've just put, I think it's very hard for defenders of Israel to back away from that reality. That is a reality. It's why Ehud Olmert and Ehud Barak both warned mm -hmm. this was where Israel was going. And they said that a long time ago. And, you know, I don't think they would argue that Israel is not there in terms of the occupied territories. I think the problem is it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult word which causes more problems than it uh, illuminates. And I think it's a symptom of frustration. But there is a case to answer. Yes, but the only thing that is always missing from all of these reports is context. Uh, Ehud Olmert, Ehud Barak, Yitzhak Rabin, all Israelis who tried to solve this, who realized that this is something that needs a solution and tried. There is another part in this story, right? There is a Palestinian part that has agency, that is not passive, and that you have to take that into consideration when you think of, okay, what is it to do? Now, you have a prime minister in Israel, right, just on practical terms, who says, I want to, you know, help the Palestinians in every way. I will give them as much autonomy as I want, uh, economic freedom as will, and they can drive and go wherever they want. But there won't be a Palestinian state. He, he uh, deals with the issue of shrinking the conflict. Does that move us forward? Does it move it backwards? This is where we are. And I think that to not see that there is also a Palestinian side here, that actions, that its actions has consequences, is just not to see the whole story. There are yep. many people in Israel who want to solve this. But to be honest, I think they're quite uh, frustrated at how, how to do it, how to move forward. I think that's a really defensible argument if Israel was consumed with trying to solve this and the other side were just mm -hmm. not moving. But what mm -hmm. I see is a government, and look, I was happy to see this government form compared to what went before. There's a government that is formed that more or less its binding principle is, look, we're not going to touch that conflict or do anything about it because we don't agree on it, which came after a previous government, which was positively, in my view, under Netanyahu, hostile to do anything about it. So you've gone from, you know, anti-moves towards peace to neutral on the subject. That does not suggest, you know, a society which is banging on the door, try, on the Palestinians' door, saying, please, together, let's solve this problem. Yeah, I think That's they were banging. That's why I have the quibble about the, the thing of the occupation being temporary, because I know officially, but does it look in Israel's day-to-day -day life, the decisions it makes about building roads and uh, and investing infrastructure and everything else, does it really look to you like a country that's thinking <laughs> the clock is ticking, we're uh, going to one day give this uh, stuff I'll, back? I'll tell you what it does look to me. It looks to me and to many other Israelis that in the major junctions in which Israel was willing to go for peace, and we know what was on the table, right? <laughs> it's not that anything was a surprise. Israel 
had this explode in its face, quite literally. This country went through years and years of terror attacks. And if you don't understand, not you, you do understand, if if the wide world doesn't understand the effect of this on Israeli psyche when attempting to go for any other move in the future, then that is... That is something you have to see when you ask, did we bang on the doors? Yes, we did. This is what we got, right, in in the Israeli uh, explanation. So, again, this is where we are in this this situation right now. And I think there are still people who think that this is a possibility but don't see a way way out of it. No, you're right. uh, And, you know, I would only— Can I make one more point about the temporary— Well, okay. I was going to say one thing. Let me say one thing and then you come back. I was just going to say on the temporary, the Camp David effort, which is the last big effort, it was was 22 years. Well, okay. But these are, almost, it's well over a decade ago. And Mm -hmm. Camp David, which was the the one where the response was blowing up in the face. And I I understand the seriousness of that and how it did change Israel's psyche. Uh, But it was was 22 years ago. And the Oslo Accords as well. I agree. But that's 20, 30 years ago. Anyway, go on. You were going to say on temporary, and then we've got to get on because I want to ask you about Bennett. No, I want to keep fighting. This is fun. Um, <laughs> this is your COVID recovery. Well, plan. exactly, exactly. I feel <laughs> much better. Tea. I feel much better now. Um, I was going to say <laughs> just one more thing, um, and this is about temporary and about history surprising you. And we talked about that a little bit with Yuval Noah Harari. Look, if Donald Trump had won a second term. Right. This is just let's walk walk with me in this strange land for a minute. You're getting COVID nightmares. And <laughs> and, and he we know what Jared Kushner's plan was, right? We know that the plan was a partition. We know that the plan was to set up some form of Palestinian state, however that strange map could have worked. But if Donald Trump had said, This is what we're doing now, Netanyahu, and this is what we're gonna do, this is what would have happened. I'm just saying that. You say, and I think that is a, is, our, is, a, is a solid argument, that something has been going on for so long, it's very hard to call it temporary. And I'm saying that things change so rapidly where we live. And if I had told you a year ago that Naftali Bennett would be prime minister and the Islamist party would be part of his coalition, or rather what his coalition depends upon, you tell me, I'm, you'd say I would, I'm, in, I'm insane. So I would just say that things change in a way that we don't always see. I think that is completely right. And I like that uh, perspective that things uh, do change. My one prediction would be that if things did change, even to the extent there was some diplomatic channel, a political horizon, some negotiation, I think you would see a dialing down of the rhetoric of apartheid slash anti-Semite, the two sides throwing those terms. I think, as I said before, I think it's a function of inaction, that the only way of keeping this thing a discussion is is linguistic and, rather than concrete. So tell us about Bennett because he's been in the news too. Um, actually, news is, a, is an operative word to use here, uh, Jonathan, and it's not every day that I think it's important to talk not only in Israel but also uh, to the wide world about a story that has to do with newspapers. But this is what happened this week. Uh, Israel Hayom, which is a newspaper that most Israelis considered uh, for a long time as the mouthpiece of Benjamin Netanyahu, founded in 2007 by uh, billionaire uh, Sheldon Edelson, changed his, uh, its editor-in-chief, or rather the editor-in-chief moved from his position. The editor-in-chief 
is uh, Boaz Bismuth. I uh, have to uh, give a little bit of a, uh, a hint here. I just have to say that he is, A, someone I've known for a long time, B, a panelist on our uh, Friday night uh, show. But Boaz Bismuth uh, uh, was, basically ended his tenure as the editor-in-chief. Why am I telling you all this, and why is this important? Because he was seen uh, as a very clear loyalist of Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, six days ago, Naftali Bennett, the prime minister, gave five interviews, no less than five interviews, to Israeli newspapers, including Israel Hayom. And after that, Yair Netanyahu, the son of the former prime minister, uh, what Israelis kind of look at as a version of Donald Trump uh, Jr., wrote something about print is dead, and this newspaper is now a Bennett Ton. Now, uh, in Hebrew, you should say that Iton is the word for newspaper. This was usually called, Israel Hayom was usually called the Bibi Ton, uh, and the fact that he called it the Benetton kind of indicates to you that the Netanyahu family feel like Miriam Edelson, the now widow and the person who publishes this newspaper, has moved on and moved her support from Netanyahu to Bennett. Another indication, if you will, an important indication, that this newspaper is now not a supporter of the former prime minister and of his, his uh, dwindling political power. Whole new meaning to United Colors of Benetton. <laughs> I feel uh, now. I will never look at that brand name the same way. I think that's um, uh, really telling, uh, uh, and it suggests that something we've talked about before, which is you know the last days uh, of the BB era, perhaps because Israel Hayom was such a sort of signifier of BB's grip on the Israeli national discourse and conversation. It does strike me how interesting that the two key players in the initial love affair, the sort of mating that was um, Sheldon Adelson who owned it and Bibi who benefited from it, are both in a way sort of gone. I mean, in the sense Adelson died last year and um, Bibi is in the dock with his corruption trial and, as you told us the other day, potentially being banned or barred from politics altogether. So it does suggest that is a chapter that has closed um which um and it's a sort of sign of it in a way which is really interesting we should get on with our awards and can it possibly be that we well why don't i do mensch first just because it's fun um i've been wanting to do this for a while um it's so the world is gripped by wordle the word game that was snapped up this week by the new york times for a seven-figure sum um, invented brought, uh, by a man named Wardle. It was ma- invented by a man named w- Wardle, I think. I Wardle, think that's Wardle. what I said. Did you, you? you said it with a better accent. Yeah, okay. And so he set up this game, but there have been all kinds of offshoots and spin-offs. So this week I discovered Judel, which is the Jewish version. It requires, you can find it the same way, judel.app, um, J-E-W-D-L-E. It requir- The difference is it's a bit harder because it's six letters, rather than five letters, which you have to guess. Uh, And that makes it rather challenging. The inventors of the game said they had to do that because there are so many um, words that involve CH or SCH, etc. So here we go. I had a go before we started with my opening word for this game is always Pesach, (laughs) because it's got quite a few vowels and it's got a CH in there. And listen, it really paid off. Because yes. my, in, Wait, it told no, me already, yes. write this down, get your pen and paper out, because it's told me that A-C-H are not only the right letters, but they're in the right place. So this mm-hmm. six-letter word ends, ach, but... It, a Jewish name, that a Jewish word that ends with ach, that didn't narrow it down. It does hasn't narrowed it down, but we can eliminate the letters P, E, and S, because they're grayed out. They aren't right. It's, it's not 
So tell me, a, 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 give me a Jewish word, Yonit, that ends in ach, that is three letters and doesn't involve P, E, or S. <laughs> I'm just still reeling from the fact that your idea of, of bedside manner while I'm with COVID is saying <laughs> that you, Oxford grad, can't figure out a word and maybe I... COVID Again, head. Really head. sick with COVID here. <laughs> I know, but I think you're going to be able to do it because I, I'm hitting a blank. Because I tried wait, Ruach. Wait, wait. Okay, give me this I tried again. Ruach, but that's five right. letters. Okay, wait, it's Ach. Right, that's the end. A-C-H. A-C-H. Six and it's, words. And I tried Korach, which is a cedra, but it told me word not found. What are the letters that we know are not there? P, E, and S. Ah, because you said Pesach. Okay. Right, so they're eliminated. Huh. So, so, so he, not, not Korach because... They said word not found, like a cedra doesn't count. I mean, I can tell you that yesterday's words was Lutkas. So they, I think it's quite mainstream, their choice of vocabulary. But it can't be Moshiach, that's too many. It's not Ruach, and it's not Korach. What can it be? Wait, it's wait, been wait, driving yeah. me mad. Jonathan, Nebech, try Nebech. I didn't right. mean you. I, I meant try the word. Okay, thank you. No, it can't be because of the okay. E. We know ah, it, there's no, no E. e. No E. Um, Think of something else. It's got to be, and they say Jewish. It's not like a, yesterday was Lutkas. I mean, okay, I've, you know, okay. it's something. Ach, ach. Hebrew. Tanakh. Oh, no, but hang on. I don't think you can use two letters. Let me try. Let me try. Okay. I what think you're not allowed. Is there an A? There's an A. So There's an A already. I'm not sure you're allowed, but okay. T-A-N-A-C-H. Enter. Oh, great job. You have done it. <laughs> you have cracked it. I knew, phone a friend, you Look, would unlock the puzzle. Um, this is why Jonathan Friesen is such a good friend, listeners, because he thinks his idea of fun when you're not feeling well, is to uh, challenge you with uh, word games. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, that wasn't helpful, just, was it? Okay. Just some tea and a good book would probably be... Uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> um, that is, no, that would have been the right remedy. Well, anyway, I feel better. You've helped um, unlock the doodle. So um, I think for Mensch of the Week, or Mensch is probably plural, the team who came up with doodle, I think they're part of the Australian Jewish community. Bravo to you. You can be our collective... Mensch, how many letters is that? Yeah, that could be your letter. That could be your word for next week, if you like. Mensch. I still think Nebuch would be better, but whatever. Yeah, no, that could have been nice. But no E, what can we do? So go on, tell <laughs> us about the, who's week. in the chutzpah category. Look, this is, it's been a tough week, right? A very crowded field, very crowded field. But I think that the chutzpah award of the week will have to go to Aryeh Deri, the leader of the Shas party in, uh, in Israel, who is uh, in opposition, we should say, for the first time in a long time. And he is upset over price rises. You know, we talked about this last time. Many Israelis are upset about this. Naturally, uh, since his uh, party is in opposition, and maybe not even because of that, he's blaming the government. Um, and really accusing the government of starving children. Even an ad that came out this week uh, and is pretty, uh, let's say, uh, pretty clear on that message. Let's listen into a little bit. תסתכלו לו בעיניים, ממשלה שמרעיפה ילדים ומעלה מחירים, אין לה זכות קיום. ש"ס. אוקיי. Now, the reason Mr. Derry is still in our chutzpah column is because he uh, launched this campaign, including, of course, himself tweeting from, I hope you're listening, Jonathan, hmm. the Ground Kempinski five-star <laughs> resort <laughs> in Switzerland. No. Now, I'm not going to be a demagogue and say how many people can you feed from one room in the Grand Kibitzki, but 
you know, his, his children went on to say he has, I think, eight or nine. They funded this vacation for him together, etc. But still just, I think, the way the optics of this, right, is just don't start a campaign about blaming the government uh, of starving children when you're sitting in a five-star resort in Switzerland. Just a little bit, a little bit of chutzpah there. I think it's beautiful chutzpah. I like returning to the original core meaning of chutzpah, and I think this fits that very well. I feel, I feel as if Arya Derry has a, quite a strong track record when it comes to <laughs> chutzpah. I feel he could have many multiple awards. Uh, that is a wonderful uh, uh, nominee. I think we want to say that if you've enjoyed this edition of Unholy or um, Unwell, as we might all otherwise <laughs> unhealthy, uh, do review, rate, and uh, otherwise recommend us to all your friends. And we will say our thank yous to Lior Friedman, Rom Atik, Omer Primat, and Irad Eshel for original music, and a big thanks to Richard Myron. And I will try and feel better so we can meet next week as well, Jonathan. Rafua Shalema to you. Rafua, maybe that will be tomorrow's word on Judel. Who knows? <laughs> See you, Yonit. Wish you better. <laughs> See you, Jonathan. <laughs>